I think ownership, that everyone has an owner's mindset, not a renter's mindset. That's massive. That is something I'm looking for in anybody who's on the team at this point. Ownership, I think that there's also this posture of taking God seriously, but not taking yourself too seriously. So being willing to to laugh and to not feel like you have to posture to like get into somebody's social ranking system, just to have a good time. Take God very seriously, take the work very seriously, but not take each other too seriously. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. You know, whenever someone asks me, why do you live in Phoenix, Arizona, and what do you love about Phoenix, Arizona? There's a bunch of things that come to mind, right? The consistent sunshine, the running paths, the proximity to the mountains, all those things are good, but there's a handful of things that are really great. And one of the great things is that I go to a church that I absolutely love. I go to Redemption Tempe in Tempe, Arizona, And if someone asks me, man, what do you love about the church? Well, there's so many things. The way that they do Sunday service and really focus it as a time for worship and that they structure everything from the call to worship to confession to communion every weekend around that purpose and that objective is just wonderful. But then also the way that they prioritize community and the way that they center all teaching around biblical truth and that they're really invested in the members of the congregation growing and becoming alive and mature in their knowledge and understanding and application of that biblical truth. It's it's just absolutely wonderful. But I'll tell you, there's one thing I didn't necessarily expect, anticipate, or even look for, and that's that the church that I get to go to is an organization that I deeply admire. The way that this place does leadership, accountability, culture, communication, so many of the things that we talk about on this podcast, it's just become a place that just it inspires me, honestly, because it's a living, breathing example of what it looks like to be a healthy organization. And what's so neat that you'll hear a lot about in today's conversation is that there's a lot of people that are responsible from a leadership perspective of making all of that come to life in such a healthy way. But one of those people is one of the co-lead pastors at the church. His name is Jim Mullins. And so today I wanted us to get to learn together from Jim's perspective. But before we get into all of that, I just wanted to start with a few rapid fire questions. Okay. So if Jim Mullins has a free Saturday with his family where he's not working, what is he doing? Probably watching ASU basketball games or making up crazy games with my daughter that no one else in the world would enjoy but us. (laughs) I love it. Very good. Uh, What is your favorite part of your role currently at the church here in Tempe? My favorite part is seeing other leaders thrive and that fruitfulness emerges from their distinctive gifts. And I think if I were to add another one, it would be... uh, Forming the imaginations of people. Oh, dang. We're going to get into some of that today. That sounds great. Excellent. What's something about you that other people might consider weird? Oh, it'd be hard to find something that people don't consider weird. (laughs) Um, I I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a a really hard one uh, to narrow that one down. I think it would be that I take notes 
in Turkish in, in my journal uh, sometimes uh, because it'll slow me enough, slow me down enough to really have to think through what I'm writing and what I'm saying. <laughs> That's pretty weird, right? I, yeah, I would say so. And, and so just to clarify, you understand Turkish, correct? Like you're not just... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> le- learn Turkish just for the note-taking. The, the language acquisition preceded it, yeah. Oh my gosh. In my mind, I can just picture sitting next to you in the meeting and then looking over and glancing at your notebook and seeing just a bunch... I mean, I don't even know what the Turkish language looks like, but that's... Man, that's a great answer. You, you never... I mean, I've asked that question before and you literally literally never know what you're going to get. So I really appreciate that answer. That's such a good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, three books that have impacted the way that you act or think. Yeah. Visions of Vocation by Steve Garber. Uh, probably mm. the best book on vocation I've read. Another one would be The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership by Steve Sample. Uh, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, I have read that book. Our, our friend uh, Seth Washespeck recommended that book to me, and holy oh. cow! Like, I, I I heard the title and I was like, "Well, that sounds great." Like, I disagree with everything I hear in the leadership space, so this sounds like a great one to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, it's it's a good one. And then a third one would be, you know, I'm going to plug my friend uh, Josh Butler. Uh, he's written a book called Skeletons in God's Closet and the way that he mm-hmm. does, has these theological paradigm shifts where you can, the, the, the parts of scripture that seem to be cringy uh, are actually mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I'm uh, reading Skeletons in God's Closet right now. Uh, really? My girlfriend Aspen, who you know Aspen. Yeah. We actually, we've sent that book to a couple of our customers. Mm. And literally, I I was talking to one of our customers, Herb, the other day. He owns an excavation company up in Maine. And we always start our calls with one highlighter win from the past month. And I told Josh this the other day. His highlighter win from the month was that book. He said Mm. that book was just so bad. It was so cool to hear. And man, I can see why you would answer that as as one of those books. Um, Who are some leaders that you look up to and why? Yeah, well, Rick Love it was the head of Frontiers for a long time, a missions organization, and he was a mentor of mine, and he was a fascinating guy, a man committed to peacemaking and conflict resolution, yet a tough linebacker-type guy who, for his hobby, liked to wrestle alligators. And just the the paradox of his life taught me so much. So he was a mentor of mine, and probably the most significant influence when it comes to leadership on me. I also enjoy learning leadership from unexpected places. So I think watching the offensive line in a football game, uh, that there's a lot to learn about leadership from there. And if I would say another, just to stick with the weirdness theme, Tex Winter, who was, he, he, this is where I get really controversial, actually, is. <laughs> just five minutes, just five minutes in is where you no, get really controversial. <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, you think that people are going to come out for any other controversial thing. This will really get people out of the woodwork. He was the assistant basketball coach for the Bulls and the Lakers, the teams that Michael Jordan and Kobe won all their championships with. And actually, 
very unheralded, designed the system in which they thrive, but they were in a system that Tex Winter put together that really helped them thrive and be who they were. And he was the assistant coach too. That is wild. I can see why that might be just a little bit controversial. That might ruffle some feathers. (laughs) People whose childhood nostalgia depends on Michael Jordan (laughs) being the singular greatest basketball player with no one else influencing it. uh, It it really shakes the foundations of what they believed. That's right. Okay. uh, If people want to learn more about Tex Winter is his name. If they want to learn more about him, do you have a resource or something you would tell them they should look at? Like, where did you find out about this guy? I learned about him through being a basketball coach and studying the triangle offense. And so um, more than him, it's actually the principles that are built into the offense that are most intriguing to me. Very cool. Very cool. Golly, that could be a whole episode in itself. Um, Yeah. That's great. Okay, final rapid fire question for you. It might be a rapid fire question. We'll see. People always give me heck for asking uh, rapid fire questions that don't feel rapid at all. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) I was thinking about how to kick off this conversation, and Aspen is the one that actually brought up that in your bio – it lists you as the co-lead pastor that directs the theological and vocational formation at Redemption Tempe while also making extravagant analogies about pancakes and omelets. Um, <laughs> and so uh, where like, where does that come from? Do you have an analogy about pancakes or omelets that you could share with us? Yeah, I would say the pancake, uh, more than even an analogy, is a sign of what God intended for the human vocation, that God in the beginning creates everything, but he does not make it complete. He shows restraint and hospitality in making his people created in his image to not make everything that would ever exist or every person that would ever exist, but hiding the potential within his creation and waiting for humans to cultivate and draw out that potential to further reflect the glory of his creation. And so I think with pancakes, what you see is, especially with maple syrup, the audacity that God hid such an incredible gift of maple syrup in the sap of a tree that it took probably hundreds of years of strange experimentation for someone to tap into one of those trees and think, maybe I should boil this and then pour it over pancakes. And and when that person does that and discovers that incredible gift that God has embedded in the tree, he's cultivating the hidden brilliance of God and sanctifying Saturday morning as he drizzles it over pancakes. And uh, I think that's one of the ways that you just see the brilliance of God's glory and generosity and how he allows us to discover it and cultivate that potential. So that's pancakes. <laughs> so that's pancakes. Yeah. I uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a market for pancake analogies on demand, but I think if there is, I think you're the guy, man. I think you've got it. <laughs> 
Let me know when you find it. I've, I've been looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, hopefully this podcast will just tap into that audience and this will just go viral because of what you just shared right there. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, there's so many topics I want to get into today that I think are just going to be so valuable. Um, One of the things that I often tell people just about my time here in Arizona since I moved here in April is just that I found a church that I love. And in many ways, it was a a church that I, I didn't even have the vision to dream up or imagine. And so it's something that I'm so grateful to be a part of just as a member of the church. But beyond that, what's been really cool is it's a church that organizationally inspires me. Like I am just so enthralled with what y'all have built and the way that you have built it and the way that you are continuing to build it and grow the church. And so that's some of what I wanted to get into today. But I thought what would be really interesting to start with is whenever you and I met, it was a handful of weeks ago now, I think I mentioned something about the fact that Uh, The church was very organized. There were a lot of systems and processes in place. And I also experienced you as being someone that's very organized. And I just remember you saying like, oh, that is not naturally me. Uh, Mm. And so I'd love for you just to start by saying like, what is naturally you whenever it comes to organization and work and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I'm a poster child for ADD. And probably the first few years of my adult life, I would have a uh, hundred ideas a day and would start one of them every three months. Uh, I would vacate whatever I started for something new all the time. I was constantly late to meetings and didn't plan in advance. Uh, that's kind of how I grew up and what is more natural to me. And so That's kind of how it was. I think the biggest issue that my wife and I had in marriage for our first few years was the volume of ideas that I was throwing her way um, and the amount of stress that that created for her. So, yeah, that's that's where I was. And that's probably where I go without the constellation of little systems and things I've picked up along the way. Mm. What initiated change in that arena? Like what occurred or was there a specific turning point that you can think of that initiated change? There were two or, two or three things. One of them was hearing people describe me as, well, I think I actually saw an email chain where someone basically described me. I wasn't intended for this email. Someone descri- uh, describing me as uh, like, yeah, he's, he has a lot of interesting stuff. You're going to get a lot of energy around it and, and whatnot, but I don't know if he's going to follow through. And s- just realizing how much that was a barrier in me serving people and contributing. And then I think probably the earliest thing was the, the tension in my marriage around it. Mm. And, you know, the first step I took is instead of just sharing my ideas with whoever – Um, I will capture it in a journal and I will refuse to let myself speak about it until I get to a Friday morning, Friday mornings where I can process and create. And on Friday morning, I've got about 13 questions that I'll pray through and read through that help me process the merits of the idea. I'll write a little summary of it. And then I 
will have a conversation with the most pessimistic person I know, or one of the most pessimistic people, and just tell them to tear it apart. Uh, and then an optimistic person, because sometimes the beauty of an idea is just to share it with someone else who's going to enjoy it with you. And if I still feel like moving forward at that point, that's when I'll either bring it to my wife, if it's related to our family or anything like that, or that's when I'll bring it to the team, but not before that. Mm, I, I love that you highlight for the sake of serving others. I'm also really interested in the Friday morning time. Do you know off the top of your head any of the 13 questions that you use as a filter to evaluate the merit of an idea, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. They're not the most brilliant questions, but they're, they're questions around the cost, both time, money, the emotional energy that it will cost other people. There are questions about the timing of it, questions around how it aligns with my sense of what God has created me to do. Um, and then, then I have some fun with it, even who would be the best person in the world to implement this idea. If I could draw from history and have a team that would help implement this, who, who would it be? You know, those are some of the questions. And, and then, you know, I also try to think about the, the stage of an idea because there are some ideas that are good. They're just not ready to go public. They're like a child. A child is good, but you don't just send them out into the world as a seven-year-old. There's a certain maturity that they need to have before they go out and meet people. <laughs> I, I love also that you highlight the fact that this is a process you follow both for professional ideas in the workplace uh, and the ministry work that you do, but then also for at home. I, I've never really mm -hmm. thought of that paradigm before. I'm, I'm not married currently, but a lot of the people listening to this right now are married. And uh, I've mm -hmm. never, we, we work with a ton of visionary, creative self-described ADD leaders, right? That just have ideas all the time. And I see how if that isn't disciplined, it can wreak havoc on a business. I've never thought about how that can wreak havoc on a marriage. <laughs> I got a feeling if I don't think about it, I could experience how it wreaks havoc on a marriage. So it's good that you're helping me think about yeah. this. But what's, I guess, what's an example of like an idea that you'll have related to your family that you need to practically run through this process? Do you have any examples of where that's occurred? Yeah, I mean, anything from, hey, maybe we should move to Iran. I mean, that's <laughs> just, something, a big one. just something small. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was the conversation that was the impetus to, like, figuring something out because that one really upset my wife. <laughs> and uh, to, to something like, should we turn our carport into a place where homeless people could live? You know, or... Or even just something like, hey, maybe we should spend the month of July doing X, Y, and Z. Because my wife is such an immediate implementer that all she can think of is the logistics around it. And so I might just be in the mode where I am dreaming out loud, but that creates a lot of stress for her because she she can't just dream out loud. If, if we're going to talk about something, she wants to think about how we can, how we can do it. And... I mean, she's come a long way, too, in that she will ask me and draw out some of the dreaming stuff with me. So we're both moving in different directions uh, or toward each other in the same direction. Mm. But, yeah. that That's super helpful. And I think that that applies to the workplace a lot. One of the things that 
Someone on one of our office hours calls that we recently, uh, or that we do every week said recently was, he just said, he gave advice to another CEO. He's a CEO of, I think of a 70 person company, he gave advice to another CEO. And he said, you need to realize that a lot of people on your team hear your communication as commands. And, yeah. and he was like, they don't realize that, uh, to use your language, they don't realize that you're dreaming out loud. And, and so I guess if, if you're talking to leaders in the marketplace that are very creative, is there any advice that you would give them with regard to how they communicate to their team about their ideas? Yeah, that's a good question. One thing I've tried is just labeling the nature of the conversation. Uh, sometimes I'll even use the language of a hat. Like I'm wearing the dreaming hat right now, or I'm wearing the advice, not directive uh, hat right now. And, and just saying, this is the nature of this conversation. And I think that that helps. And then I would say that know the person too. There are some people who, and it, you're giving them a gift by bringing them into that process. There are some people that, for whom that creates a big burden for them. And just knowing the difference between the people. Mm, that's really helpful. Are, are there any other, maybe it's systems, maybe it's uh, tactics or strategies that you've implemented to try and enforce uh, organization and discipline into your life and work? Yeah, um, I have what I would call my stewardship playbook, hmm. uh, which is something that I read through and pray through every morning. And it has like a purpose statement, roles and responsibilities, the different areas of life that I need to pray through, um, key dates coming up. And then each area of life, uh, there's a generally a prayer around it and uh, some goals around it and certain rhythms that would, uh, rhythms and habits that would work towards goals. So I have that. Um, that I'll, I'll pray through and look through pretty much every day. And then... Um, Can we pause on that one real quick? Can we pause just right there real quick? Sure. So sure. W- with that stewardship playbook, is there something in that maybe principally that you would pull out for the leaders listening and say, you know, if you get anything from that, m- maybe you don't need to do everything that Jim's doing there, or maybe you could follow that format. But here's what I would tell you has been so helpful for me from that. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's... It's returning to the same commitments every day and sort of reconsecrating yourself and, and setting yourself apart for the things that you have named in your moments of greatest clarity that this is what I want to be about. Oh, man, I resonate so much with the line of named in your moments of greatest clarity and re, like re, mm-hmm. rededicating yourself to that. Because it's like sometimes I fall for the lie that every morning is my moment of greatest clarity, and then I have new vision, <laughs> new new visions every morning. And it's like no, like go do the retreat or whatever you're doing, have the clarity there, and then execute on the plan until your next retreat. So that that that's yep. really powerful and really helpful. Uh, sorry, I cut you off there. Any any other strategies or tactics that you would really just recommend for people, or that have been really helpful for you? Yeah, I would say designing a good second brain, using all the various tools that are out there with purpose and knowing why you're using, you know, whether it's your Google Drive or your GoodNotes or or whatnot, and organizing that and offloading 
things that you need to remember to, you know, the cloud and storing things that you've captured that can be very helpful ideas, lists, recipes, checklists, articles. And then that frees up your brain to actually create and think about others and strategize. So I think so much brain space is wasted in trying to remember a bunch of things that we have tools that can do a better job with. Mm, For sure. One of the things that stands out to me on this topic is I think it can be really tempting and maybe even popular to focus on the hacks and the tactics, but like without a heart shift, those hacks don't Mm. sustain. So is there anything you would tell people just with regard to the heart posture that you need to sustain a level of organization and to sustain a level of change like that? Yeah, I would say it's interesting. I think one of our big challenges is that we live in a very strange, very, very strange world that most of the rest of history would not recognize as real life. And what I mean by that is so many of the things that historically have been integrated or have now been disintegrated in a post-industrial world. So, for example, you read the Bible or anything from back in the day. It never talks about exercise or rarely does because people's work and their exercise were integrated together. It's not talking about how do you find time for family and for friendship because all of these things were integrated into your into your life within your village, your community, your prayer life, you know, it was all very integrated, but we have a lot of advantages uh, in our day. We don't have certain, you know, we're not going to die of cholera as easy. You know, Um, you and I are having this conversation from a distance and we receive those as gifts, but we live in a very disintegrated world that tends to separate. There's a time for friends, time for family, time for God, time for work. Time for exercise. Just go with me on this one. If someone got in a time machine and showed up at a gym from like 200 years ago and they just looked at what was happening, they would see all these people working but doing nothing productive. It's like you have no boat, so you got to get on the rower machine and you have nowhere to climb, so you have to, you know, get on the stair stepper. But we need it today because our work is mostly knowledge work and not connected to our our body. So all of that to say is there are, we need to take intentional steps toward reintegrating Mm. life and seeing if there are things that have been pulled apart and thought of as this has its own time to connecting it together. I'll give one example of it. You're, You're familiar with the Pomodoro method of productivity you know it's nothing brilliant but it's basically intense work for 30 minutes followed by a five minute you know break and then you do a few of those rounds and then you take a little longer break Uh, because everybody can lock in for 30 minutes Mm -hmm. right well what i've tried to do with that pomodoro method is to turn a, a playlist where i'm doing deep work to make that a an opportunity to interweave work and prayer. So before I begin a work day or a set of tasks, I'll write out my prayer for what is going to transpire in the moments to come. Then it'll play about 30 
minutes of instrumental music that just has me locked in, but then it will disrupt that with a worship song. And during that worship song, I step back and I thank God for where he was present in those moments in those first in the 30 minutes that I spent there. And I sit and I rest in God's presence. And then I go do a little walk around the office. And then before I step back into my next Pomodoro, I pray through that prayer that I had prayed before and then go back into another 30 minutes of work. But the 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 Benedictine monks, like they were known for ora et labora, work and prayer interwoven together throughout the day. And so that's, it's a very simple thing. And it's just to say that work and prayer are not these separate things, but there needs to be moments of of integrating and bringing them together. So that's just one example. Man, that's, that's beautiful. And I appreciate how, like a lot of times, like the practical side of things doesn't always hit home to the heart side of things. I feel like that's the, a unique, mm-hmm. like a unique piece of advice that hits both. Man, that's really relevant to me personally. In church on Sunday, just as we were going through worship, one of the things that I, I recognized about myself is I can almost build up stress within myself trying to make sure I don't think about work in church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And, and I can like build up anxiety and stress with myself. And I had this realization. I, I can't remember exactly what triggered the realization, but it's like maybe the answer is not to put a bars on the door of the church to say no work allowed. Maybe the answer is to start bringing more of church into the work, like bring invite Jesus into the work. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the two are woven together. And I think that's related to what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When you... Think about that for your life. What do you think about? What is that? What might that look like? Well, the the first thing that stands out is very similar to what you just said in some ways. One of the things that I've noticed uh, about myself is I'll tell someone or I'll think to myself, like I'll tell someone, yeah, I'll, I'll pray about that. Or I'll think to myself, oh man, I want to pray about that. And in my mind, I'm always like, I'll pray about that tomorrow morning whenever I pray. And <laughs> and I'm always mm. like, why? Like God, like the whole like message of the faith that I profess is that God is accessible here and now. And why am I just keeping him sequestered to this hour in the morning? So I think one thing that definitely stands out is prayer throughout the day. And what I love about your method that I haven't thought of until literally right now is, I mean, we teach all the time that effective habits are formed around a cue, right? It's something that already occurs within your day that triggers, okay, this is what now needs to happen, right? It's why every time I finish dinner, I want ice cream, right? Yeah. But but like you're structuring, you're putting cues into your day with that worship song that it's like, you know, that's going to happen. And that offers a trigger I mean, it, it feels in some ways that you're not neglecting the brain science. You're incorporating the brain science to make sure that you're acknowledging and creating time for the things that really matter and make you effective. Does that does that feel like a right summation? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that connects, Jim, to one of the other things that I really wanted to talk about, which is, I don't know if I would describe it as the mission statement of the church. Is all of life is all for Jesus the mission of the church? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, to make disciples who live all of life all for Jesus. I love that. Okay, so, I mean, it's such a great example of one of the things we talk about all the time is language creates culture. 
And it's like that statement is probably said every single Sunday. It's like you can't come into redemption, Tempe, without hearing that. Um, and I think that that's related to what we were just talking about. Can you explain, like, a mission statement is why an organization exists and what it's out to do. So to say that's the statement that we're building this thing around, it's clearly important. What does it mean and why is it so important to the team at Redemption Tempe? Yeah, it's important because the biblical story is that God is the creator of all things and delights in his creation and is the giver of every good gift and is the the Lord and the King over everything, every hour of the day, every sphere, every uh, our recreations, our occupations, those sorts of things. And so, so it means that all of that stuff matters profoundly, not just as a platform. Because here's the thing, your platform will never really be a platform until it's more than a platform, right? I mean, that's a part of it. But what's... The, the, the value in it comes from something else. It comes from the biblical story. It comes from the fact that Jesus cares deeply about every aspect of life and has called his human image bearers to enter into work and recreation and those things in a way that reflects his image. And I mean, I could just give you a couple of the, the theological lenses that, that provide meaning for work, recreation, home life. Uh, one is that we're imitating God's character, that we are reflections of him. So whenever we do something that's creative or an administrative assistant provides order uh, for the world with a well-cultivated spreadsheet, she's reflecting the God of order. He's reflecting the God of order. A teacher is reflecting God's wisdom. You know, so you're reflecting God's character. You're drawing out the hidden potential that God put in the creation that he declared good in the pancakes, (laughs) cultivating it with human hands, making it very good. You're sustaining the world that is his. It belongs to him. Like through a number of circumstances, I was working at a missions agency and I needed to step in and work as a janitor. The backstory is my church was like, you're not allowed to raise support anymore unless you're going overseas. So the local people couldn't raise support. So this was a place that they said, well, we can provide uh, an hourly wage for you to do this. I was doing that and I was working with someone who was um, a former refugee, had worked in the academia prior to coming to the U.S., but couldn't get a job in the same field. I think it was medical And the way that he worked really helped shape my imagination about the meaning of doing janitorial work. And I had tried to get out of doing it because I think that my, the story of janitorial work was being framed by a different story out in the world rather than the biblical story. And once it began to frame it, that's when we started to think of what we were doing as uh, microbiological warfare when we cleaned (laughs) toilets, that we were... We were taking out E. coli and salmonella and and things that would harm people who were created in God's image and being an extension of God's hand of protection with every time we sanitize the toilet and therefore reflecting his character as a protector and a servant. And that, if you can bring that 
to your your work, which is the message of the of the Bible, then it infuses every single thing that shows up in your task list with deep meaning. And so, like as a church, that's what we want to disciple people in, so that Jesus is at the center of their life during all twenty four hours of the day, rather than just the church related mm-hmm. stuff. That just makes me think of an interview that I once did with a guy named Stephen Mansfield, and I'll never forget what he said. He said that the greatest leaders take people's eyes and lift them 10 degrees above the horizon. Mm. And, and, and I mean, this, like what you're talking about here, it's, it's 10 degrees at the least, right? If anything, it's even farther than 10 degrees, right? But what what's so cool to see is certainly like, clearly you're doing that individually for yourself, but I've observed and witnessed how redemption is doing that organizationally and collectively for the congregation, right? It just feels like y'all are constantly focused on taking people's eyes and helping them look up, right? Like recognize it connects to something bigger. Is there anything you've learned that you could pass on to leaders? Because that's something that a lot of the people listening to this uh, strive to do, desire to do, want to get good at, and even connect it to their faith in some ways. Anything you've learned uh, as a leader that ties into helping people connect what they do day to day to the bigger, grander, greater meaning of it all. Yeah, that's good. A few things come to mind. One is to focus on the right brain and shaping the imagination rather than just communicating information to the left brain. Both are needed, but we've sort of suppressed the right brain. The imagination, like when you think of imagination, I want to ask you this, like what comes to mind or what do you think comes to most people's mind? I think you might have some different (laughs) answers, but. Oh, well, I mean, I think typically, uh, you know, whenever I hear the word imagination, I think the stereotype is like, oh, so you're like a dreamer, meaning you probably live in your parents' basement and you don't have a salary, right? It's like what we can associate or, or it's for little kids. It's like for Disney world and little kids. And it's not something for people that want to do real work in the real world can be the stereotype around it that's yeah totally it's an elective for eccentric people at best but the reality is is that it's both the left and the right you know c.s lewis calls the imagination the organ of meaning it's how you make meaning and imagination is in any given moment whether you're conscious of it or not you're making meaning of the moment so the you could communicate a, a principle that says hey Your work is important because it reflects God's character, but the way you shape the imagination is by asking them to make the explicit connection from their very task to God's character. So how does email reflect God's character or participate in his mission in some way? And someone, I I I had a conversation with this, someone who hated doing email and came to the conclusion of, that it's cultivating the garden of language, that God gave language to humans, and you are able to cultivate out of that garden something that is able to bless another person and help their life be fruitful or encourage them or something like that. So I think focus on the imagination, and primarily the way you do that is through storytelling and asking good questions. Some questions I often like to ask that – help with that are like what aspects of God's character are being reflected when your work is done well? Mm. Uh, What aspects of God's creation are you cultivating? Uh, How are you pushing back against the effects of the fall? 
how is your work an instrument of love and service for others and really helping them connect the, the dots between, you know, work now can be so specialized that we don't get the benefit of the butcher, baker, and candlestick maker. Like the baker used to say, I make bread and then it sustains the life of someone who eats it, right? But now you've got to take a few steps to see how your work contributes to the good of, of another. So th- those would be some of the questions that we would ask and then telling stories of those who have thought through those things and made those connections before. Yeah, that's something that's really impacted me is, I mean, you know, this is all connected to all of life is all for Jesus. And y'all, I believe it's a rhythm within the church as you do like all of life stories where you bring people up from the congregation and they tell the story of how their day-to-day work. I mean, I think it was on Sunday, like y'all had an auto mechanic up there and he was telling how fixing broken cars reflects God's character. And it's like, oh my God, like people were, people were clapping, right? People were stoked about it. It's like, oh my gosh, it's so cool. So uh, man, there's something in that too, that's related to leadership about the power of story. Like it's one thing to give people a concept and teach them the concept. It's a whole, I mean, I I get chill bumps on my arms whenever I see it come to life, whenever y'all bring someone up on stage. So anything that you've learned about how to integrate story into leading people effectively, Jim? Yeah, more than the the how is the, the what and the why. I think story is, I think it is your best apologetic. And I think that there's also, actually, I do have something on the, on the how. Um, I think telling stories that don't make you the hero of the story, as much as those are like compelling, good examples, a lot of times what that will do is it just makes people feel like, ah, I could never hit that. But if you're in a position of influence and power, tell the stories where you can either be the foil or the buffoon. <laughs> um, and then, and then with, with others who might not be in as much of a celebrated space, tell the stories that make them the hero of the story, or at least them the person closest to the hero being Jesus. And I think that that's helped quite a bit. That's really good. Keep going, yeah. One other thing that comes to mind is it feels like Formation happens and the best stories happen with low grade tension. High grade tension is going to make people panic. Um, It's going to overwhelm them. No tension is just going to be too easy. But creating low grade tension is the sweet spot of where formation Mm -hmm. happens, I think. Do you have an example of that? I, I'd love to, like, if, if it's possible, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but if it's possible, make that practical. Like, what does it look like to tell a story with low-grade tension that engages people? Yeah. The thing I might do is ask somebody, you know, if God created everything and declared it good, how is tobacco a good gift from God? Right? Like, that's, it creates some, some tension there, right? Because it's something that, and the way it's used causes a lot of cancer. And, you know, it's, it's a low-grade tension question. You know, and then go on and tell a story about, in Africa, the Ebola outbreak of a few years ago was just ravaging villages. And they were experimenting with all kinds of medications and treatments. And one of the most effective ones had an ingredient that was an enzyme that came from the tobacco plant. 
um, and how tobacco was created by God to be an instrument of healing, not an instrument of of, of death, right? And so it's a, a nice, playful tension that people feel like they can explore versus saying, uh, you know, a high tension question would be, do you think that your work matters to God? Why or why not? Or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Or yeah. <laughs> uh, a high grade tension would be, who's the person in this room who you have the biggest challenge, uh, you know, working with, you know, that makes people panic. The low, the, um, no tension question is just like, uh, are you supposed to love other people or not? You know? Mm. Yes. What is your, is your work important or not? Yes. And I can even see, I can even see how a question like, how does tobacco fit into God's creation if everything he created is good? It's like, that feels very low tension, right? I'm not going to be personally affected by that question. But I can see how the people listening to that question on their own time could start to draw connections to, okay, well, if tobacco can be used in God's kingdom because he created it, then I can think of all these other things that are likely higher grade tension that I would rather deal with personally than rather being talked at about. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's so much that Jesus did with regard to that and that he gave people a lot of almost in some ways broad and and, uh, parable-like stories or questions that allowed them to engage with it at their own time in their own way, it seems like. Yeah, the story of the Good Samaritan is a perfect example where he could have said, to the lawyer who was challenging him, uh, who is my neighbor, he could have just said, well, everybody's your neighbor. Love everybody. But instead, he picks the Samaritan, their religious, political, ethnic enemy, and tells a story that makes him the hero of the story and how he loves and cares for a wounded Jewish person and then says which of these people was the neighbor who loved well and forcing that person to, to grapple with, uh, it's the Samaritan, the, the, the Samaritan. He doesn't even say the Samaritan in the story. But the no-grade tension is everybody. The high-grade is you, it's the Samaritans, and you fail every day at it. The low-grade tension is, let me tell you this story about the Samaritan, and then you tell me who the neighbor is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, classic Jesus move. Yeah, yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, it's kind of related to the topic of imagination. I think one of the things we talk about a lot on here is you can't take people to places you haven't been. And so, if you want to create a more imaginative team, you got to start by being a more imaginative leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I personally, like, I have experienced this in my own leadership in life. Is man, my imagination muscle can atrophy, dwindle, and die if I don't use it. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important, I think, to cultivate that. I think that's strength for you. And I think that that strength is reflected by your hat that I'm looking at right now that says 2073. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd love for you to give people a little bit of insight into why a hat that says 2073 on it and how does that connect into what we're talking about with imagination right now? Yeah, the hat represents the year 2073, 50 years from now. And one of the things that we're really calling people to do is to think about growth, not in the numeric growth in any given moment, but 
can we do the things today that would matter in 50 years from now in the future generations that we can in some way pass the faith on to them to where we are loving our neighbors who will exist in 50 years from now. So that's a lot of what we've been calling people to. And then, so there are little reminders. So I had a hat made that says 2073 that I wear every day and uh, told anyone in the, any one of our members that if they catch me on any day, not wearing some green, because the idea is to cultivate forests um, and for 2073, if they catch me not wearing green, then I have to give them a book from my bookshelf or something like that. But it's, <laughs> well, you've so, now told a lot more people that on this podcast, just hey, so you know. So <laughs> that's fine. Hold me accountable to it. Um, so I'm 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 locked and loaded. I'm ready for St. Patrick's Day any day. So yeah. So I mean that that's something we've been inviting people to, and how it relates to imagination is well I think part of what we have done in, in various settings is we've asked people to try to imagine what it would be like for the children that are in our congregation now. For many of us we will have died by twenty seventy three or be very old, but the leaders of the church are the, are the the babies right now. So we've we've spent time imagining what would it be like if Asher Slobodnik, Jake Slobodnik's son, who was born into a world where people were praying for him to not die as he was born very premature and his life was sustained by the prayers of God's people, what would it be like in 2073 if we were faithful in the way that we cared for him and led him to where he could be the one who's leading people in prayer for a baby that's on the verge of death in 2073, Mm -hmm. you know? You know, so a number of things like that. But I think you had another question about how that relates to the formation of imagination. Yeah, and I think one of the things is to engage all of the senses and to Mm. think about, you know, we tend to be a a very ear-oriented culture. But can you engage people visually to where every time someone sees me, uh, they're reminded of that 2073 thing. Um, mm. It's not just the words that I'm saying, but literally the hat that I'm wearing and the colors that I'm wearing, playing with colors. Can we can we play with smell, taste, you know, it's tactile. And I think that these things are all right brain things that also help with the formation of, of the imagination as well. And so when you're thinking about how to help shape the imagination of the people think about how do you engage the senses how do you engage time how do you engage the unexpected things that you would almost say this has nothing to do with the vision that i'm I'm casting those are moments that can be captured and sweet moments of reorienting people Mm. I think that is so rich, especially for the marketplace, because I I think especially in small business right now, the term vision has kind of come to mean what's your three to five year goal, right? And and people say, oh, what's your vision? And they say, oh, 20 million in annual revenue by 2025. 
And, mm-hmm. and it's like, man, compared to what you just gave, right? It's like, that doesn't feel like a vision. I'm not like in, enveloped by that. I'm not engaged by that. Like the frontline team member isn't, isn't deeply energized and enthusiastic about 20 million by 2025. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it, it seems like there's probably some principles in what you just talked about that y'all have done with the church that could very easily apply to the marketplace about what it means to actually cast a grander vision. Yeah. I'd be curious what, what you see, what, um, some, some of the principles that you might pull out. Yeah. I'm just curious. Well, with regard to the church. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I think the first thing that stands out, I'm not, it's funny. I'm not even technically a member of the church yet because I've been out of town for every membership class, but I promise the first membership class there is I'm in, but, uh, (laughs) but here's what's so crazy is I didn't hear about 2073 from you. Mm-hmm. I heard about 2073 from four of my friends that were at the membership meeting where y'all rolled it out. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, I think that's when you know you've got vision, right? Mm-hmm. Is whenever in some ways we talk a lot in the marketing realm about like, what's your word of mouth strategy? Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, y'all have given people, like, no one's going to come and say, oh, the goal of the church is to have, you know, 2,000 people in the seats by 2024. It's like, no one's going to talk about that. Right. Cause no, like, no one really cares about that. Like, what they care is about what is the impact that we're making for the kingdom. And I guess one of the principles for me that stands out is like, y'all in some ways sparked a fire that was already existing inside people. It, it was, it's almost like y'all, it, it seems like, and you even kind of presented it as a question, right? Y'all kind of tapped into the deep longing of what people already wanted to be a part of. Uh, and now I, I wasn't any of the crea- in any of the creative planning meetings around it. So I don't know if that was part of the strategy or if that was an unintentional outcome, but does that resonate? It definitely resonates. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely resonates. And I think that there's a... I mean, we moved into it intuitively. I don't think we named it that way, but I think that that resonates. There's this quote. I can't even pronounce the guy's name right. It's like Antoine de Azupery or something like that. I don't know. But he, he basically says, if you want to build a ship, I'm sure you've heard this, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them the long for the endless immensity of the sea. And... um you know, and it's not even that you need to teach people to long for it. They're already longing for it. And so uh, just naming and tapping into the stuff that God has already put in them that they long for, mm. focusing on the affections uh, mm. rather than just disseminating information. Mm. So where my mind goes from there then, that I'm really interested to know how y'all practically make this play out is it takes two to tango, right? You you need the longing for the immensity of the sea. And I would say mm-hmm. there are a lot of businesses, and just from my observation, there's a lot of churches right now that are not teaching people to long for the immensity of the sea, right? To not, They're not mm-hmm. giving or casting or enveloping people in a grander vision. But then at the same time, it's like, well, we need a boat, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we, gotta, we gotta go somewhere and like we got, it's gonna take some time to put together a boat. And so in some way, it's like maybe the immensity of the sea is the dream, but then you also need a vision and you need some goals and you need a plan. So mm-hmm. um, how practically at Redemption do y'all take... 2073 
and then bring that closer to home to really affect the day-to-day actions and the, and the priorities that the leadership team is focusing on? Yeah, great question. We do have a strategic plan and we do organize around teams. Our goals are team-owned goals rather than individual-owned goals. And we have team charters that define the scope and responsibility of each team and really try to have a sense of agency for each team. That the teams that are tasked with something, that they know the sandbox, they know the boundaries of what they're supposed to do, but there's a lot of freedom within those boundaries. Mm. Uh, But we're all moving in the same direction. So, you know, we have three big things that we push into, uh, which is um, all of life discipleship, word and spirit, and family culture. And so at any given time, the teams should be able to answer the question of what are they doing to help push into those three areas. So those are, that's, that's a, how we have alignment. Um, and then we, you know, we do smart goals. We have prayers associated with, with each of the goals. But I think something that has been maybe more helpful with that is uh, something that we've recently added, which is our canal goals. So the idea is if you're going to cultivate a forest generations after you die, then it can't be something that is cultivated or is dependent upon every tree being watered by one individual, by a gardener. So we're we're talking internally about a mindset shift from being uh, gardeners to cultivating a forest. And if you want to cultivate a forest, you've got to bring water to a barren place and, you know, through a a canal. So what we have is a set of goals that are called canal goals, which are intended to help the people in the congregation care for one another and minister to one another that, that nourish the ecosystem that will exist long after we are gone. And to make things less dependent on us individually as people. Mm. So an example of that would be instead of having people just meet with a pastor every time they go through a hard thing, how do we equip the people in the congregation and create settings where people are equipped to care for and minister to one another and to walk with each other through uh, times of need? Mm. Man, I, I've seen that play out in so many ways just in my time attending and being a part of it since April. But one of the things you mentioned in our meeting, it's a phrase, and I don't even remember the context, but I think it applies to what you're talking about here is uh, you use the phrase plurality and leadership. Um, mm-hmm. I think that connects to what you're talking about here. Can you explain why that is something you're currently passionate about? Yeah, absolutely. So... What we try to have is every team that there there's a plurality of leadership, which means that there are strong voices influencing everything, multiple voices, not just one person who's making all of the decisions, doing all of the thinking, and uh, that there's a real sense of collaboration with it. Um, we also want in our situation that Jesus is the only consistent personality and that nothing is built around the personality of any one of us. Mm. The real goal is that someone could step into anything related to the church and just say like, I don't know who the main person is other than Jesus. And so 
in order to do that, what you need is you need space for a plurality of different gifts and different types of leadership voices. Uh, you need to be able to have conflict well and speak with kind candor. You need to be okay with not getting the credit, even if something was your idea, but to live in obscurity a bit and to see things flourish apart from you getting credit and love it. You need to have a real sense of like love and uh, fun uh, when it comes to the team and real appreciation for one another and for the gifts that they bring and where they might be stronger so that there's deference. Now, the the challenge with this is that it makes things less efficient in some mm-hmm. ways. And you, I do think that there, when I think about plurality, it's not that there aren't point people. It's, you almost think of it like a, like a propeller. You think of the three prongs of a propeller, right? Mm-hmm. At any given time, one of them is going to be in the lead and the others are following. And so if the uh, helicopter flies with all of those propellers working together and some of them following the lead of the other, or everyone is leading each other and everyone is following each other in distinct areas and knowing when to defer and when to step in and take the point. Mm. Was that kind of what you were thinking uh, of, if there are other areas to draw out of that. Yeah. No, I think that that's super helpful. I, I think you opened up a whole, like, uh, just just explosion of questions in my mind about how, how that works and benefits and costs and tactics associated with it. Maybe one place that we could key in is it's like, I mean, y'all have made this come to life. I mean, we could look at the entire org chart of Redemption Tempe, and, and based on what I can see, like, you can kind of start to look at redemption as a whole, because I know there's multiple campuses and start to see this, these principles starting to show up elsewhere. But I mean, it might be helpful just like to hone in on you and Josh being co-leaders of a church, right? And I mean, there, I mean, there are books literally written that would say like, you can't have a two headed monster. And that feels like a recipe for disaster, right? Like this is going to be really Mm -hmm. bad. Uh, But man, I just experienced you and Josh like in such a healthy way. And I just see the benefit, like the overflowing benefit that it has for the congregation. What are the things that y'all did early on whenever you both entered into these roles as, as co-leads uh, that you think enabled y'all to have a healthy relationship? Yeah, I think there's a delineation of who plays point in which situations. Mm-hmm. So we're always functioning as 1A, 1B. And in the various role uh, that we share um, and the various aspects of the role that we share. Um, and we pretty much know whenever someone's in 1A and 1B and we respect that. But we also feel the freedom to speak very candidly with one another. I think that there's a, a depth of friendship um, mm. that we have that can sustain saying very clearly I disagree with you. I think that this is a bad idea. This is not going to turn out well. And to be able to open up why and to not feel like you have to walk on eggshells. I I mean, honestly, our wives have both told us like that the candor with which we speak to each other is uh, 
that they would even prefer us to not be that candid with them. <laughs> you know, uh, very direct, huh? very direct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But question there, were y'all friends, were y'all friends prior to leading together, Jim? Yeah, we were, uh, we definitely were, but basically Josh was in Portland mm-hmm. and then he came to work at redemption. Josh and I were friends and really enjoyed getting time together, but it was, you know, once or twice a year when he would come to town or I would come to town for something. And, uh, and then we worked together for about, I think it was like a year, maybe a year and a half as pastors within redemption before taking that role together. So we were, we were definitely friends and we definitely had some time working together prior to that, which I think helps. What are the communication rhythms that y'all have in place to make sure you stay lockstep with each other? Yeah, we, uh, we meet every Monday afternoon and, uh, he's got a list of things. I've got a list of things. We throw them on the board. We prioritize them and we go after it. Something else that's been good is, um, we've done a handful of like writing retreats to together. Um, Mm. And just getting some of that shoulder to shoulder time, and I think I think that sincerely, both of us have a real appreciation for each other and for each other's gifts, to where it feels like I think he would say the same thing too. Like leading through the crazy season that was like the COVID and you know all of that election season stuff with the churches and can you meet? Can you not meet? Like it would have been a nightmare to do it alone and it was a real gift to be able to do it together. So if Josh ever stepped into a different role, I would probably want to have someone else be a co-lead as well. Uh, And I think he'd probably say the same thing um, if vice versa, because even the other folks who are on our team, John, Warren, Jackie, there's not a huge difference between Josh and I and them. It's not like we're sitting here at the top of the the org chart and there's them. I mean, they carry a lot and their voice carries a lot of weight as well. Mm. Is there, maybe we just take the people that you just named. Uh, And this, it's funny you mentioned Jackie because I was talking to her on Sunday and I mentioned that I was having this conversation with you and I uh, I asked her if she had any questions Mm. that she was like, oh, you got to ask this. And this is one of the ones that she kind of threw out. So uh, I think it fits in perfect. If you look at that group of people that you just listed, is there a common trait or quality that maybe you didn't even know initially you wanted on that leadership team to be able to operate in this type of leadership environment that now looking at that group, you say, man, everyone possesses this quality. Yeah, absolutely. I think ownership is one that everyone has an owner's mindset, not a renter's mindset. And that's, that's massive. I think that is something I'm looking for in anybody who's on the team at this point. Uh, ownership. I think that there's also this posture of taking God seriously, but not taking yourself too seriously. Uh, so being willing to to laugh and to not feel like you have to posture to like, you know, get into somebody's social ranking system, uh, but um, just to, to to have a good time. Take God very seriously. Take the work very seriously, but not take each other too seriously. Then I think another one would be 
actually two more come to mind and these are probably the strongest skills that I would encourage people to develop is the ability to listen well and ask questions. You do a fantastic job at this, by the way. Mm -hmm. And then the second one would be to navigate conflict well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all of those people, plus many others who I haven't mentioned by name, all exemplify those things. Mm -hmm. How would you answer that question? I'm curious. <laughs> well, man, I mean, I, you know, I, I said it's it's one of the things I'm most inspired by about redemption as a whole is I'm just organizationally very inspired by it. The way y'all run things is just really impressive. And so it's like we're actually, we're I'm literally taking lessons from what y'all are doing. Like this was a selfish podcast recording because I just want to learn y'all's playbook and bring it into Path for Growth and the mm -hmm. owners that we work with. Right. When I look at that group of people that you mentioned, and, and I know some of them to higher degrees than other, I mean, Patrick Lencioni talks about the ideal team player and he talks about humble, hungry, smart. I, mm. I think y'all have that in spades. I think the thing that y'all are like over indexed on, maybe more than any organization that I've ever been around, is humility. I, and, mm. and I, it's still, it, it could be a longer conversation that would probably be really hard to get you to talk about because it's really hard to get someone to talk about how humble they or the organization they're creating is. But it, it feels woven into the culture to such a degree that I experience it being reflected from the congregation. And, and mm. that is wild. Like that is a little bit mind blowing to me, but it's almost visceral. And, and, it's the word that other people who are members of the church, I hear them use the word humble regularly in describing why mm. they love the church. And so there's something wow. that's, yeah, I mean, credit credit to you and Josh and the whole team and what y'all are building because, I mean, and yeah, it just reflects the posture and character of Jesus in so many ways, I think. So I'm grateful for it. Wow, that's encouraging. Yeah. Mm. I, I was kind of asking about the characteristics you look for on your team because you speak so highly of your team members. Mm. I, I wonder what those common threads are. Yeah, I, I would point back to our core values. Mm. Point to Jesus is our first core value. And so like someone that has had a real collision with grace and truth um, is what we're looking for. Alignment, we say that the message we give is the way that we live. And so our message, the drum that we're beating is practice healthy growth. And so we want to see people that way before they ever met Path for Growth, they were practicing healthy growth and then they just ran into us mm -hmm. and they were like, oh my gosh, there's other people that do this too. Mm -hmm. Freedom and responsibility is our third one. And we just believe mm -hmm. like uncommon freedom comes from taking uncommon responsibility. Mm -hmm. Treat people like friends is number four. And so just loving, loving people because we actually love people. And then finally, strength is for service, which is like, man, we, we think we have a responsibility to take the gifts that God gave us and be strong with them so that we can pour them out in service of others. And that's why we were given those gifts is not to be hoarded, but to be spent. Those are so good. Oh, thank you. I mean, in many ways, it yeah. feels like a gift from God. Like that language was not mine by any means, mm -hmm. but yeah. And I mean, I would imagine like y'all do, we work really hard to weave those core values and those characteristics into the interview process to make sure that a person aligns with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Man, those are so strong. I, I just hope everyone hits uh, rewind uh, 30 seconds and just jots those down. <laughs> I know, but I, I know you ring the bell on them 
Yeah, people are probably yeah. like, we've heard him, believe me. Like, he can stop talking about him. Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. That's how you know it's in the water. That's man. right, yeah. in the water. Man, a final yeah. question on this plurality topic, and I know we're running close to time. If, if someone is in a position right now where maybe they look up and they're like, man, this this business isn't what he just talked about. This business is very centered on me. Or it's maybe very centered on me and a couple other individuals. But when I hear him mm-hmm. talk about the idea of plurality and leadership, where we've decentralized decision-making, where we've empowered people to use their gifts, where we've not built it around one personality or one ego, like they say, I really want that. Do you have thoughts on a first step? Yeah. Boy, a few of them just came to mind. I think one first step would be to take bullets and give awards and uh, find the craziest ways to celebrate the work that people are doing. I mean, just like over the top celebration Um, and then take bullets, like give people the freedom to try stuff and fail. And when it doesn't work, you own as much of that as you possibly can and have the conversations with them privately on like the areas that they can improve on it. But don't, don't make that your public lead in. Uh, but then when they, they kill it, just uh, celebrate it like crazy. Okay. You got, I mean, I, it's clear that you're alluding to things that y'all have done in the past. So do you have an example of how y'all have really celebrated someone in a crazy way? Well, yeah. I mean, I think one that's less crazy is we give out, and in, in a lot of our meetings, we'll give out sort of superlative awards to each other uh, verbally, you know, the, but it's a, a real honoring kind of tongue in cheek way. Like the most, you know, the, what would he, what would we say for John Crawford? He's always fun to, <laughs> you know, cause he's so good. Uh, he's such a good pastor. He's like, you know, the guy who, if there was a pastor machine, like he was, he would be like the mold of it. <laughs> So like is someone who felt who's most likely to have been the mold for a pastor and then dressed up by like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a supermodel. You've got, <laughs> you know, and you know, you, you kind of laugh. And uh, if you knew John Crawford, you would uh, know that that it's a very fitting thing, but you laugh, you celebrate. Um, and then there are even little things like playing the long game. So I have, uh, there's a person on our team who I appreciate so much, does so much good work. Uh, and I've told him that his nickname is Brisket. And uh, we're getting that in the water. People are calling him Brisket. But I'm telling him, I will not tell him what that name means until Easter. And it's a very, there are very honoring reasons about it. And I won't tell anyone else what that name means uh, until Easter. And he asks me on Easter. And on Easter, he's going to tell me, and it's going to give me this moment to just like bless him and to mm. honor him for things. But it's instead of just saying it in the moment, it's this playing the long game of him wondering what is it that he, you know, that sort of thing. So um, stuff like that is just so fun. Yeah, that that's so good. I, I think that absolutely connects to, I mean, what you were talking about, about tension and storytelling and tension and questions too. It's like people are engaged in the nickname of brisket, wanting to know the story of how it ends. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I was already looking forward to Easter. Now I'm really looking forward to Easter. So yeah. that'll be great. 
Uh, well, uh, Jim, I know we were talking before this. If people want to stay in touch with uh, you, uh, probably the All of Life podcast, which we'll link um, in the show notes of this episode, is a great place to do that. Also, Redemption Tempe posts their sermons, and Jim probably gives maybe one out of every five of those messages. Does that feel right or something like that? Something like that. Yep. Yeah. And I'll put the link to uh, one of my favorite messages that Jim's given on the four quadrants. Um, And then also Jim wrote a book called The Symphony of Mission that we'll link in the show notes of this episode. And uh, then also, spoiler alert, he's got a book coming out that, um, man, it's going to be really, really powerful. So we're excited about that. Maybe we can have you on again at that point to talk about that book, if that sounds good to you. Sounds great, man. Hey, you're doing great work. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I so appreciate you and your example and just your impact that you and the team that you built have already had on my life. So thank you. Well, goodness, I'm so grateful to Jim for his example, for his leadership, and for his investment uh, and time on this podcast today. There is so much in there that is both uh, principally powerful, but also really practical and that we can take action on. So I hope you will do that. Hey, real quick, before we go, if you got value out of this content, we send similar content in written format every single Wednesday via email. And most of you know, I don't really like email that much, right? Because too often it's not worth your time, not worth your energy. So we said, if we're going to send an email, it better be worth it. That's why the email is called Worth It Wednesday. Every Wednesday, we'll send you a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. If you want to get on that email list, you can sign up for it at pathforgrowth.com or just click the link that's in the show notes. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.